Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week I want to talk about research because there is so much of it in the entertainment industry. If you do a pilot before your pilot gets on the air, it undergoes any number of screenings and tests and focus groups. And so that's what I want to talk about this week. And my guest is Steve LeBlanc. Now, Steve is a media research expert, formerly with Fox, with Sony, the Game Show Network, and a number of other companies. He was the head of research for 20th in his 20s, young wonderkin. He was uh, at FX in his 40s, and most recently, a marketing research executive at Sony. Really interesting stuff this week. Steve LeBlanc on Hollywood and Levine. So, Steve, explain to me how you go about researching a television show. What methods do you use? We use, I think, almost anything that will get viewer and customer subscriber information. I think those terms are basically interchangeable in this day and age. And there's really two categories. There's quantitative research, which is like those things called Nielsen ratings and now you know, there's all these multi-platform ratings and, uh, you know, reaches and all the mystery metrics that the streaming services use. But for advertisers, it still comes down to Nielsen and their ability to measure eyeballs for advertisers. So that's the quantitative research. Those are the numbers. That's the daily report card that showrunners you know, will start screaming at. It's like, how could it get a point six? It's 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 the greatest thing on 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 the air. And then there's qualitative research, which is more along the lines of looking at what people react to in real time, whether or not there are scenes that peak. That's done now primarily with like large samples, predominantly online. Back in the day, it was people going into a room with like a focus group where you turn the dials. They don't do that anymore. You, what? Oh, they oh, don't oh, do oh, that it's anymore. Done. It, it's absolutely done that way. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of the companies that will say we don't do that basically do do that because the one thing about online is that there's always the chance that there can be somebody hacking in, and there are companies that are a little paranoid about that. So if you're looking at a pilot. Uh, or something, you know, even the companies that are the most advanced will go back to the old dials and focus groups in like little theaters in the valley. Uh, So so to explain that to people, basically what that means is you'll get a, a group of people and they'll all assemble in a room 
and they'll watch a pilot and they all have these dials. Mm -hmm. And if they like something, they move it like to the right. If they dislike something, they move it to the left. And we, as the creators, producers, etc., are sitting in another room and we're watching the show and we're watching two graphs. We're watching a blue graph, which is the men, and a pink graph, which is the women. And we're watching this graph go up and down and up and down. But, you know, there's things you can do if you bring in a hot babe in a bikini, then the blue graph goes through the ceiling. (laughs) You know, you bring in a puppy and all of the graphs go right to the roof. So you kind of question the accuracy of those. And then those same people, because I've been in situations like this where my pilot just tested great with the graph people. They all laughed. They all had a great time. And then they took like 13 of them and they put them in a room with a focus group and a moderator. And all of a sudden, everybody hated everything. Right. All of a sudden, they're going, I hated her. And you go, so, well, why? So, and you so, go, well, I hated her shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so what you've just described, Ken, is kind of what I call the your baby is ugly explanation that uh, you know I've had to do with a lot of creatives and it's kind of like going beyond just the graph because to your point, there are things that people react to. People react to most favorably things that they're familiar with. So, you know, I worked on the testing of the shield, for example, and the shield was like nothing that anybody had, you know, seen before in the genre. So if you look strictly at the graph on the shield, you would see these flat lines and you'd say, Oh, they don't like it. So, What we did in that case was we kind of did a parallel of a camera on the people who were reacting and the graph itself. And we kind of laid them out, you know, side by side, you know, so you can compare the video to the graph. And what you realize is that they were not not reacting because they didn't care. They were not reacting because they were in shock. And that's where you get the kind of the color commentary and it's going beyond just the graph and you have the interpretation, the sechel, to, you know, to look at that and then talk to your creatives, talk to your studio heads or your network heads and say, this is what's going on just beyond the numbers. And frankly, I think the people that do it best are the people that can make that connection and go beyond just simply what the numbers are. And another thing, too, is whoever moderates these focus groups can sort of lead people in one direction or another because they can say, so uh, what What didn't you like about Vic Mackey? <laughs> and people who come in off the streets, this is like their only opportunity to make a comment on a television show. So they are going to comment <laughs> whether they have one or not. I can't say that I have not seen those situations at times. Certainly, there are networks that will kind of stack the deck. No specifics, obviously. I've personally not done that. But that then, again, comes down to know who you've got there. So, you know, when you know when I hire a moderator, I look for somebody who truly is objective, 
who basically follows the script that is written for them by myself and, you know, with the help of my peers, who doesn't go that way. There are moderators who do, and we've seen a few of them on television. But I've personally not done that, and when I've seen that, you kind of like, like you said, you you toss out the results because, um, you know, they're a little tainted. Where do you find these people? Well, now it's done uh, by larger companies where they can basically get 200 people in 40 different cities in one day. So in days when malls are open, we would go to certain locations based upon who you're looking for, any particular cities that you think are you know, representative, and you'll get four or five people per city to go into a kiosk. They'll get paid a little bit of money. They'll sit. They'll be at a computer screen. They'll they'll watch the pilot. They'll then answer a series of questions. It all goes into a central database of information. And you're sitting back in you know your office or home, and uh, you're getting these results in real time. So think of it as almost like an election going on. Uh-huh. And that's how it's done most commonly when there's pilot testing, when there's uh, concept testing, things like that. Obviously, what we've seen this year and, you know, people who have said you don't need pilot testing. Well, guess what? This is the first year where the overwhelming majority of shows did not get pilot tested. They may have gotten some table reads and reactions to that. Right. But no pilots yeah, were only, made. The only one was tested was be positive. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes when I'm sitting looking through the two-way glass at the people who are participating, I can, with pretty good accuracy, go, she's going to hate it. (laughs) He's going to love it. This guy is not going to shut up. This person is not going to say a peep. Do you find that's the case, too, when you sit down and you just survey the room of the 13 or 20 people who are sitting around that conference table? So, Ken, as somebody who's heard a few of your previous uh, podcasts, I've heard you talk about the live audience reaction at a sitcom and how you and creatives really rely upon that real-time reaction Mm -hmm. uh, as kind of your barometer for is it funny or does it need to get rewritten? And when you do the dress rehearsal, you make it change accordingly. I would say... There's a very similar dynamic that goes on there. So, yes, if you find that there's kind of a follow the leader or somebody's being overly influential and, again, stacking the deck, we've had occasions where we will politely ask that person, here's your money. We prefer that you go home early. (laughs) Um, so, So we do that. But, again, if you do your job right, and more often than not, I think, people like myself and the vendors that we trust will do that, we will tend to get people who, A, will shut up, B, who will react in real time accordingly, and C, will give you that honest feedback. I'll also tell you that now there are methodologies sort of like what we call neurofocus, which is like we attach this, uh, you know, something to people's brainwaves. So it kind of goes beyond. Yeah. So so there are networks and studios. It's done a lot in the advertising vein. I actually was part of 
one of the first ways that this was done for television, where you kind of, you know, anticipate that the focus group may be a little misleading and you take out the factor of the verbal reaction and it becomes an emotional reaction. It's done more as a spot check, but again, there are ways to get around those particular situations if you're sensitive to them. Okay. Do you do multiple tests on pilots? Absolutely. In fact, I would say the typical pilot testing is we do a first cut, usually off off of a rough cut. We tell the audience that literally the film is still wet, if you will. And there'll be some temp audio, temp effects, and you'll get those reactions. The creatives sit around afterwards and you know, we'll analyze those graphs that you talk about. And frankly, they go a lot more detailed now than just simply gender. We can get it to a particular age group, a cohort group of like, let's say, uh, let's say I'm reviving big wave days. Please. I, <laughs> that's, that's, above, that's above my pay grade. But l- let's say we were going to re- revive big wave days and we would think it would play best with, let's say, people who watch mom. Okay, so we would actually say, so give me a cut of women 18 to 49 who say that they're fans of mom, and we will get that specific a graph, and we'll look second by second. We'll see where certain dialogue, certain scenes peak. The creatives will go back to whatever they, they, they didn't put in, look for alternate shots, and then we'll test a second version. The network may have a different version. They usually do this in parallel. So let's say for a typical pilot, there will be between three and five tests, sometimes even more, depending upon the negotiations, before we get to the final verdicts that ultimately get determined, and again, what used to be the upfronts. But for a a sitcom pilot, it's kind of deceptive because... If there's straight lines, if there's, you know, a half a page of dialogue that is just setting up one joke, well, you're going to look at the graph and you're going to say, well, you got to do something about this because nothing was happening here. And you go, well, yeah, but they're walking down the stairs. How do they get into the room? (laughs) Um, Once again, this kind of goes into the... You can't just look at the graph. You know, right. you know it's, it's, it's like if you read the box score, you know what the results were, but you'd have to actually go to the tape of the game to know how it unfolded. Yet again, another Ken Levine analogy. So um, <laughs> this is what, frankly, folks like myself do well, and frankly, creatives who can participate in that and who know that there's that you know nuance, this is what you do. You, you do not simply rely upon just what the score is. And frankly, I, I don't think that there's any you know, executive who's successful these days, either creative or on the studio or network side, that doesn't do that. Okay, so I want to run something by you. This okay. is uh, something that I put in a play of mine where I had a character talking about research. I think and, I remember this play. And it's called A or B, if you yes, want to go I see it somewhere. It. Keep going. <laughs> so 
one of the characters comes up with a, an alternate idea for research, which I want to run by you. Tell me okay. if this is a good idea or if this is idiotic. But her suggestion, the character in the play, was to let especially millennials, let them sit and watch the show while they're on their computers and on their phones, since that's what they do anyway, and let them text their reactions as opposed to the dials, because most millennials do sit now and watch a show while they're multitasking. Is that a great idea or idiotic? Not, not, not only is that not an idiotic idea, in fact, that is an, altern- an alternative way of doing testing that, particularly if you're looking for a millennial group, that many research companies will do. They will actually use what they call, you know, analysis of the uh, you know, artificial intelligence. They will take those words, they'll put it into a word cloud, they'll match it up to the video and... To your point, when you, you can do online testing, people log into a secure site, they can do it from their phones. They can do it from their devices. And frankly, you know, millennials, Gen Zs are more comfortable doing that. And that is an alternative to the dial score. In fact, you can create a virtual dial based upon these word clouds and the timeline of it. So they stole it's a my idea. idea and, and somebody's already doing it. <laughs> they they stole my idea. Yeah, now, yeah. Uh, you, need, you need a royalty, my friend. <laughs> Very early on in my checkered career, I uh, I got a job at NBC Research during pilot Dear season God. in 1973, under, and under we would 10, go to the preview house, yep. and there would be audiences that would be enlisted to watch these pilots, and then we would sit in a back room with the creatives, as you call them, and we would watch the graphs and we would be basically hand-holding the creatives. And, oh, my God, Steve, there were like a couple of shows uh, that were just just terrible. I remember one, it was done by Jack Webb's company who did Adam 12. It was, called, it was called Fraud Squad, Oh, that, one, I that one didn't get on the air. Okay. No, no, it did not get on the air. It starred Frank Sinatra Jr. And not only did the audience hate it, but they thought he was dishonest. So, you know, but what it was really awkward for us sitting there with these producers. Like, what do you say? And And you must be in those situations many times. That has to really be excruciating. Number one, it's why a lot of good focus group facilities have a lot of very good wine and liquor in their uh, refrigerators (laughs) for exactly that sort of passiveness. I can tell you that I've been in a few rooms, and we actually know some of the people who've been in these rooms Mm -hmm. uh, mutually, who literally almost broke through the glass uh, (laughs) to kind of uh, attack them or ask them out on a game. Back to the point is that, you know, yes, you, you kind of play psychiatrist. And again, you you basically tell the showrunner, you know, much the same way that you would, let's say, an artist who's doing an exhibition and nobody buys their painting. It's you have the right to your creative expression. 
and your vision and yes, but you're a commercial artist and if you hope to pay your rent in your loft, you need to align what your vision is with that of the people who are actually your consumers. And again, a good creative person will take that feedback. If it's not on that pilot, it will be on hopefully the next one. But I think what you've just described is how the girl from the girl with something extra got on the air, and we know how that panned out. <laughs> well, that brings up another question, which is I assume the shows that get on the air all tested favorably. And yet, like 90% of them ultimately fail. How mm-hmm. come? It's a loaded question, but I'll try to avoid the uh, pitfalls. So, number one, particularly in this day and age, testing is only one of the factors that determines whether or not the show gets bought. That's fair There enough. are frequently business reasons. There are sometimes... Again, creative visions that supersede the results because of all of these nuances that we've talked about. And let's just say that, you know, in the same way that a Hall of Fame batter is judged great because even though he fails seven out of ten times to get a hit, let's say that the batting average of a typical network executive, certainly these days, is probably in that one in ten. And... You know, there are so many other factors that go into why a show doesn't work, even if it tests well. Is it promoted right? Did it did it go on at the right time? Does it in these days does it, does it appeal to a multi-platform audience that grows in delayed viewing to a larger extent? Does it attract a certain kind of advertiser, etc., etc., etc.? So there's so many factors that go into whether or not a show works besides whether or not it tested well. Testing is one of the factors that is used to determine whether it gets on. But I can, I think, safely say that there are plenty of shows that have been ordered in recent years that did not test well. And actually, a a handful of them, and I honestly can't recall specific titles, that didn't test well and succeeded. I mean, I think the classic example of that is the one that every creative has on their wall that Glenn Padnick sent out with the testing of Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've seen that memo. I know the people that wrote it. I know what what prompted Glenn to do it. I've sat with George Shapiro and heard him talk about it, but that's the perfect example, is that testing isn't always perfect. And in that particular case, you know, Rick Ludwin, uh, Warren Littlefield had the huevos to say, we believe in it, we'll let you make four, we'll add Elaine because it needs a female character. They made the changes, they evolved it, and a few billion dollars later, it's right. you know, still around. In today's day and age, you have the networks and you have streaming services and they have different agendas for shows and they have really different expectations. So when you're testing a show, do you test differently if it's for ABC as opposed to Netflix? Or is it basically the same test and they just decide whether it's right for them or not? I would say... The broad stroke answer is you 
adapt those variables that we talked about to the particular service because most of these, you know, situations you say with networks. So, you know, I worked with Sony for the last four years and as a independent, almost every deal with a broadcast network is a 50, 50 partnership. So whatever testing you're doing is you're trying to align that with what the network's specifics are. So again, it's that, you know, that cohort audience, that, particular niche. It's if you're looking for something that will play with the rookie, you look for that. In the case of streaming services, it's a little bit more traditional because you're an outside supplier. But again, it's you look and let's say for Netflix. So like when we were doing one day at a time, you know, Norman's reboot, we looked at, you know, shows that had from the data we had an appeal to a Latinx audience, to an LGBTQ audience. And we would build those cohorts in, and that's how we presented the results to Netflix on that show. Okay, one final question. Since we are in an election year, as you oh, know... Uh, <laughs> okay. You're going to go down that path, okay. <laughs> well, here's my question. Because you look back at 2012, oh God, and you know, like Nate Silver was dead on the money in his prediction. And then in 2016, Nate Silver and everyone else was dead wrong. So with all of these polls that are coming out every week, how accurate are these polls or should we just ignore them completely? When you start to get into political research and testing, I would say there's an even greater fluidity to information and obviously depending upon the sample, it can produce a lot of different results. Uh, You mentioned the 2016 election, and there is an absolutely wonderful documentary on Netflix about Cambridge Analytica called The Great Hack, which I highly recommend to your audience if they haven't already seen it. And the short order is everybody, I think, knows the political story of Cambridge Analytica and how it got shut down because of the, you know, involvement with the RNC. So let's take the filter of political alignment and carnage out of it. If you were looking at a research company that had had invented a better mousetrap for you to get extremely specific and highly accurate information about your target audience, The methodology that Cambridge Analytica developed in the UK was textbook. It was brilliant. I know several executives, many who worked for Nielsen in the past, that were part of that company. It was a fantastic company. I wish I could have hired them. Was it ultimately a victim of what has gone on since? Absolutely. But as a researcher with just tell me what I need to know better than somebody else can, they were absolutely brilliant. So whatever is going on now, whatever the polar, the polling companies are, and you know we know that there's both sides that are kind of touting their own results. And sure. You're going to have that. Whatever you set your sample to will, will produce a different set of results. It's like scientific research in that respect. So I think in a political year, those get more to the forefront of everyday conversation. And I think, again, it just comes down to how smart are you as a voter 
to be able to separate the wheat from the chafe. And the hope is that people are that smart. Well, there's, you know, the margin of error. And there are the Gallup polls and ABC polls and CNN polls and CBS. And and, 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 yeah, et cetera, of course. Yeah, on and on and on. If all of those polls are basically saying the same thing, can we assume that they're fairly accurate? Or again, should we just ignore it? Because, I mean, I think back to 2016 and uh, and they were saying the probability of Hillary Clinton winning is 95%. And you're going, well, <laughs> well this is done. Well, well, and, 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 and I'm sure people who watch The Great Hack are going to come back and, you know, amend what I'm going to say. But from what I recall... Um, One of the reasons that all of those polls that said Clinton was going to win was because of the the kind of the traditional way that they got their samples. So they would get them, you know, they call people on the phone or they go to registered voters. You know, again, it's the the sample size has something to do with if you get a sample size of 500 versus the sample size of 10,000. You know, it's like, you know, if you're looking at a analog TV picture versus a 4K HD. So there's all those factors. What, again, what a company like Cambridge Analytica did was that they looked at information in a different way. They went to people who weren't necessarily falling to the category of, you know, people you call at home or people who hadn't registered to vote or were not in it. So they actually went out and expanded the sample into a more accurate range. And then, frankly, they targeted those key niches in the key battlegrounds that were producing these kind of alternative results that were, as it turned out, to be very, very real. So for people like Nate Silver, who's got, you know, fantastic, you know, methodologies of his own, he could be right. He often is right. But he might not be right. So you're saying that today some of the testing is different? um, Some of these companies are using different ways of getting information? There's more of this, you know, artificial intelligence. So the way, let's say, the streamers get very highly specific information on their subscribers because they have databases into the tens and hundreds of millions versus you know, comparatively Nielsen, which projects off of a sample of around 40,000. So again, 100 million versus 40,000, who has, who has the clearer picture? So I think there's, you know, more of that kind of methodology, more of that kind of grand sample that is available now, simply because again, where we're, where was, where was streaming in the world of media four years ago, versus where it is now. And those advancements have come dramatically. I mean, I think a lot of what we've seen with traditional media companies in the last three months alone, not just pandemic related, is a direct correlation with the expansion of technology, the way that an AT&T or an NBCU is selling commercial inventory has changed dramatically. The people who are selling it has changed dramatically. So it's my belief that there's more data than ever available. It is my hope that the people who are 
running these campaigns are sophisticated enough to do it, since most of them do have advanced degrees in AI and uh, analytics. I believe they do. Again, it's just based upon how you interpret it and who's the decision maker who's going to determine what you do with it. Well, this is fascinating stuff and uh, good for you. You got to stay ahead of the curve because it changes so quickly. Steve, thanks very much. This has really been enlightening. Thank you. And I'm a free agent, so I'm available to any of your listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There you go. Steve LeBlanc, our research expert, and a lot of interesting stuff in there that I didn't know. And I've been in the industry for a number of years. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Bruce and Jason Miller. If you would like to email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And you can subscribe to this podcast anytime you want. And you can join me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Okay, I got all of that out of the way. We will see you again next week. Wear a mask. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Hollywood and the Vine. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.